Lord, I ask tonight that we would truly number our days aright. Lord, help us to gain wisdom. Lord, I pray tonight that as we are in this place that you're going to speak to each of us. You're going to speak to us individually. You're going to speak to us intimately. You're going to speak into the broken places of our soul. Lord, you're the purveyor of hope. You're the one that brings comfort. You're the one that grants forgiveness. You're the one, Lord, that is endeavoring to challenge us, Lord, with this thing called earthly life. Give us the right perspective, Father. Help us not to squander the most precious commodity we have, and that's time itself. But Lord, help us to make use of every opportunity, Father. Help us to live to bring glory and honor to your name, Father. Help us, Lord, to live such a a winsome life, a, a life full of compassion and love and understanding that people will come to know you, the true and the living God. Help us to be amazing ambassadors for your kingdom. Father, I pray tonight that as we leave this place, we'll have renewed our commitment to you, embraced your divine wisdom, and gained a proper perspective of our time here on earth, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. It's interesting, uh, last week I shared a message and some of you were here and I never finished my message and then as I was looking it over I thought, no, I'm not going to finish it because really what I shared last week really kind of was the heart of, you know, this whole idea of embracing wisdom and making a commitment toward it. But that's okay, listen, what I'm going to share today is actually, I think, uh, really the second part of it. So this is the true part too, all right? But we're into a different passage to express that. You know, we're living in a, in a time in human history, and we're living in a location in human history that we have never had a better life. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean every person has had a great life, but what I'm suggesting as a collective entity, as North Americans, we've never had a time of greater affluence and prosperity and peace. You know, yes, there was a war, and it ended the Second World War, but people were actually overseas fighting that. And so in North America, we have had, like the last 70 years, probably the most wonderful time as a people group. I mean, we have never enjoyed life so well. Think about this. Do you know the kind of amenities that you and I enjoy that even kings in the Middle Ages didn't enjoy? Do you realize that? And we just take that for granted every single day. You know, in in that time, yeah, they might have had a slave to go get water, but they had to go heat it. I mean, we can walk to our bathrooms, turn the water on for a minute, and boom, we've got hot water. You know, and now we even have hot water on demand. Isn't that an amazing amenity? It just, it blows my mind what we have. You know, you don't even have to deal with people issues if you got servants, because in those days, you might have some problems with your servants, but you know, sometimes we do as well, they break down. But, you know, we have these kind of servants today, like a dishwasher, washing machine. You know, you put your clothes in the dishwasher pile. You know, you're not spending hours laboring, scrubbing over rocks, you know, spending all of that time, or, you know, trying to garner food to kind of get by, you know, living on the periphery of life itself, just barely surviving. We're not living like that for the most part. As a matter of fact, many of the North Americans that I know are thinking about their next major vacation, some sunny spot, even though it's getting cold. They're already planning for some major event in the wintertime. Isn't that kind of an amazing element that we have going as North Americans? Isn't that true? We really are deeply blessed, but you know, 
obviously there are some challenges in all of our lives, and we'll talk about that as well tonight. But you know, at the, in, during uh, the, the Second World War in Great Britain, can you imagine living in the city of London where you never knew when bombs would fall? You know, airing sirens would go. You know, maybe they warned you, maybe they didn't. People were killed, your neighbor could be killed. Your, you know, you could have a, a loved one fighting overseas, but then, you know, maybe their spirit and their family is killed by a bomb in London. You could just imagine the apprehension and anxiety to live in that kind of a context. Many of the families had to send their children away. Some of them even sent them to Canada because they wanted them to be safe from all of the difficulty they were experiencing in England. And so in that context and in that situation, the British government appealed to a man by the name of C.S. Lewis to actually do radio broadcasts to speak into the life of the nation and bring some measure of hope to the people. And so C.S. Lewis began a series of, of radio broadcasts, and eventually, at the end of it, they compiled all of his radio broadcasts, and they published it in a book that we now know as Mere Christianity. It's very interesting. But Lewis didn't just, you know, do that. He didn't just speak over the radio to the nation, but churches invited him. And in one particular message that he preached at St. Mary's in Oxford, England, he challenged the people of England with some of the deep anxieties and the challenges that they were experiencing because they were in the midst of this great war. And here's kind of in a capsule form. I'm gonna just reiterate it here, probably in a paragraph or two. What he said to those people at that moment. He said, war does do something to death. It forces us to remember it. Now, how many know that's kind of true? It's kind of hard to forget about death when people are dying all around you, and you never know when your time is, and so you have to address that issue. You know, we're living in a culture today, we don't have to address that issue. As a matter of fact, I was reading an article, I thought it was very fascinating that many people today are moving away from having funerals. How many know that's kind of a new trend? And people don't want to even deal with death, and they don't want to deal with their mortality, and so a lot of times they just put in their will, please don't have a funeral, you know? That's where they're at, and so more and more, this is affecting the mortuary business. And so, you know, how many know that when you're in business, you gotta say, hey, the culture's changing, we gotta shift, and so you're gonna, you're gonna find this amazing, but now, you know, these companies, these funeral homes are getting smart, and they're building these beautiful reception halls, and because people have moved away from spirituality and church to have marriages, now they are renting funeral homes to do their weddings. And that is now becoming a part of their income. You go, Pastor, you've got to be kidding me. No, I'm serious about this. I'm reading this article, and, and they're generating an, a greater and greater percentage of their income is coming from people who are getting married in their facilities. Now, you, some of you are looking at me like, are you kidding me, Pastor? I'm telling you the truth. Now, think about this culture. Here on one side, we have a bunch of people pretending that death doesn't exist, and yet on another side of it, and that's how rational sin is, by the way. I think sin is a totally irrational behavioral pattern. We are embracing a culture of death, and so we have you know, people that are committing packs, of suicide packs, and all kinds of stuff, and, and so you're starting to see more and more of this glorification of death. Many of the artists are singing about it, and so we're embracing death in a totally different way. So we have on the one side this great denial of it, on the other side we're having people embrace it and people are actually taking their own lives. Now, go back to Lewis's message here. He says this, he said, the only reason you know, uh, why war has any favorable thing and why Christians in the past would actually see some good from it was the fact that they thought it 
to be good to be aware of our mortality. In other words, it's a good thing that you and I address the fact that we only have so much time and that we're going to stand in God's presence. In other words, we have to address this issue of death. We have to address this issue of what's going to happen after death. Very important questions. By the way, a lot of people today don't even want to talk about those questions. You ever try to raise questions with people? You know, where do we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? The big questions, but people don't want to discuss those. You ever ask those questions? You get a really amazing response from people. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. You know, and that's how where people are at. And so he says, you know, when someone's battling cancer at 60 or they're suffering paralysis at 75, you know, we don't even think about death then because we just think, well, that's just an individual here and there. But when bombs are falling on you and people are dying all around you, now you've got to deal with the issue in a bigger measure. And he said, in ordinary times, it takes a wise person to address the issue of death. It takes a wise person to stand up and face their mortality. But he said, during a time of war, he says, you, don't, you can be the dullest blade in the drawer and still figure out, you know, death is a reality I'm going to have to address because it's raining around me all over the place. And, uh, and so... <clears throat> Lewis goes on to say, if we thought we were building up a heaven on earth, if we look for something that would turn the present world from a place of pilgrimage into a permanent city, satisfying the soul of man, we are disillusioned and not a moment too soon. You know, isn't it amazing that we actually live as if we're going to be here forever? You know, the way we, we plan, the way we develop our lives. You know, think of, if you think of life as a journey, and you see eternity as the destination, how many know that the conveyance in this life is maybe not as important as we think it is? What I'm basically saying, it doesn't matter how you get there. You can take it by train, by plane, or by um, bus. It doesn't really matter. But you know what happens when you and I are living this life? What do we tend to do? We pretend as if this is it, and so we focus on this earthly life as there's a sense of a degree of permanence to it. And we try to nestle things and make things comfortable and make it enjoyable. But the reality is we're on a journey, folks. This is not the final destination. And really what happens in this life has tremendous bearing on what's going to happen in the life to come. Someone said to me this morning, don't you think, Pastor, that all that God is doing in our lives is actually major preparation for the life to come? And I am convinced that that is true. And so how we respond in this life is very critical for what's going to happen in the future. You know, it's interesting. A number of years ago, I read a book by Dr. Lawrence Crabb Jr. He uh, is a Christian psychologist. And I, actually, I really like him because he's theologically sound. A lot of these psychologists, you know, they got worldly psychology kind of infiltrating their psychology. And then they say it's Christian. But Dr. Crabb really has a good understanding of theology, and his, you know, his counseling uh, abilities are right there. And he wrote a book a number of years ago, and it really spoke to me. Ever have a book that actually you know, zeroes in on your soul? As I'm reading this book, you know, I'm not, given, I'm not a emo highly emotional person in some ways. I don't, I'm not given to tears and brokenness. But as I read this book, he put his finger in my soul, and I began to weep. And he said something that I've never forgotten. And it really spoke into my innermost being. And he said this. He said, there is a yearning, a longing in our souls that can never be met in this life. We were designed for eternity, and until we are in the presence of God, it will not go away. Yet, we try and fill this longing by filling our lives to capacity with earthly activity. And isn't it true 
that no matter what we do, no matter what we have, no matter you know, the relationships, no matter how meaningful they are, there's still an ache in our soul. There's, there's still a want for something greater than what we currently possess. And we're designed, really, for eternity. We're designed and made in the image of God. There's a longing for God. And so I think we have to recalibrate the way we see life and think of this ache as being normal. See, once you have that in your mind, then it doesn't consume you the same way. You begin to realize that this is normal, that there'll always be this ache. I don't have to treat it. I don't have to go after material things. I don't have to pursue this thing to meet this need because the only one that can meet the longing in my soul is God himself because I'm made in the image of God and I'm made to relate to God and because I'm separated from God in some sense, yes, God lives in our lives. We know that that's what the scripture teaches but how many know we're still battling with sin issues we're we're still dealing with sin around us and you know there's moments when we feel distant from God there's moments when we say God where are you in my situation Lord my soul longs for you there's no sense of you in my life and so there's this longing this ache in our lives and then he says what we tend to do with that longing is we start to fill it up with things and activities and people and Henry Nouwen said it this way as he's challenging our time, he says, one of the most obvious characteristics of our daily lives is that we are busy. How many know that's true? Oh, I could relate to that this weekend. I had, you know, I took this test and I had a wedding to do and I was trying to get ready for the message and I'm leaving on Monday and so I had to make sure that, you know, the vehicle had its oil change and I had to make sure that the yard was a tent. How many know what I'm talking about? We can get so busy with activities. We're not saying that they're bad. But we can feel our lives. And, uh, you know, we get a little neurotic about it. You know, we can have our to-do list, and the list never disappeared, and there's always something to do. And we just keep ourselves busy. And sometimes we do that as a form of escapism because we never really want to stop and slow down and really think about where we are in our soul. He says, we experience our days as filled with things to do, people to meet, projects to finish, letters to write, calls to make, appointments to keep. Our lives are often seemed like an overpacked suitcase. How many have ever had one of those? You're trying to scrunch everything down and everything's kind of flowing out of it and if you're fortunate, you have an extension in your suitcase and if not, you're looking, we gotta go get another suitcase. You know, it's, that's the kind of way we live our lives. It's just overflowing with things to do. He says, in fact, we're almost aware of being behind schedule. There's a nagging sense that there's an unfinished task, an unfulfilled promise, unrealized proposals. Although we are busy, we also have lingering feelings of never fulfilling our obligations. You know, when I say, when I think, say the word stewardship, what word comes to your mind? We need to be good stewards. What's the first word that came to your mind? Money and finances. But you know what? That's not the first word you need to think. The first word you need to think is the word time. Time. Why time, Pastor? Because time is the greatest unit of currency, not money. As a matter of fact, Charles Spenzano in his book, What Do You Do Between Birth and Death? He said, you don't really pay for things in money, you pay for them in time. Do you realize that? Money is just a bartering system. I work so many hours, I get so many units of resources and then I barter for that but what we're really what we're paying people is the currency of time 
And you have to think of it this way. It doesn't matter how much money I have when I come to the end of my life. I can't buy any more time. Time is the most precious commodity that God has given us. And we read in Scripture, God says that we are to make the most of every opportunity. We need to redeem the time. We need to evaluate how we're spending God's greatest currency that he's given to our lives. And so now I'm going to say something that may be a little uh, outside of your thinking, but I think we need to see it this way. It doesn't matter how long I live or how short I live. What really matters is if, you know, somewhere in this journey of life, I've encountered the great creator, I know him as my savior and my redeemer, I have discovered that he is the designer of my soul, I have come to learn what that design is, and I've discovered God's purpose for my life. And if I do God's will, if I accomplish God's purpose for my life, no matter if I'm 20 years old or if I'm 80 years old and I step off this planet, if I have done what God has created me to do, then I have been a success. Now, there's a lot of people out there who will tell you what a successful life looks like, and I'll argue with you right now. A successful life is one that has done God's will who has fulfilled or she has fulfilled God's purpose for their lives. Here in this psalm is a prayer for wisdom, how we ought to live, how we ought to spend the most important commodity of our lives, our time. There are things we need to consider in order for us to really experience life to its fullest as God intended it to be. Unfortunately, for most of us, we lack wisdom. We truly do. And that's what this psalm entreats of us. As a matter of fact, I would take as my text, verse 12, teach us, it's a prayer, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. As a matter of fact, Proverbs goes on to say, above everything, get wisdom. That you and I need to understand from the New Testament that when we have Christ, he is our wisdom. And so it's important that we have a relationship with wisdom or with Jesus Christ. Author Marvin Tate points out regarding this text, the need for human beings is for a mind wise enough to sort out the days with their events, responsibilities, and opportunities so that they can cope with the transience or the temporariness and evil of human life. You know what? Isn't it an amazing thing when you and I have the wisdom to handle what's happening in our lives? You know, I see a lot of people, and how they handle crisis is they just come unglued. Or they get upset, or they complain, or they're frustrated, or they're angry, or you know, they, they, you know, they abuse some chemical so they can kind of cope with life, or they're trying to escape. And we, all of the forms of escapism, I could talk about entertainment, sports, you know, I could just go down a list. There's all kinds of forms of escapisms that we practice. But to have the wisdom to know what to do when there's challenges in our lives. This wisdom lies beyond the power of humanity. It's the gift of God, a power of discernment, which is not the result of human endeavor, but must be taught by God. We have to come to God. We have to ask God. See, last week, you know, I tried to bring out what is biblical wisdom, and I said, you know, biblical wisdom is a skill, and I talked about how wisdom is instinctual, and it's technical, and it's, you know, it's social, and it's judicial, or knowing the right or the wrong thing. It's all of those things. But I didn't talk about how to acquire it. You know, I left that part out, and so that's why this is really the second part of the message. How do I acquire wisdom? And listen to what James tells me. 
If any man lacks wisdom, he should what? Ask of God. We get it by praying. We get it by seeking God. We get it by going to the source of wisdom. And, you know, the Bible says in Proverbs, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't fear God, you don't have wisdom. You have to come to God for it. You have to ask God for this wisdom. As a matter of fact, Moses reminds us, teach us, O Lord, to number our days rightly, to understand a number of things about our day. And so what I want to do here is take a look at the things we need to consider that are challenging our lives as we consider this issue of wisdom. As a matter of fact, the first thing we need to consider about life from Psalm 90 is that it's brief. This is the wisdom that we need to get. We need to understand how quickly this life passes. Edna, you're 90 how old? 90. 90. 90 on the dot. Can I ask you a question, Edna? Has life gone by quickly? Yes, it's gone by very fast. As a matter of fact, the older you are, the quicker it seems to go. It, you know, when you're young, you think you've got all the time in the world. And you know, pretty soon, 10 years have gone by. You know, and you're amazed. You know, you got married here a couple of weeks ago. Pretty soon it'll be your 10th anniversary. I'm not trying to rush it along, but you'll be going, <laughs> where did those years go? Just flew by. And they go by so quickly. We get busy with activities and life and the demands and the challenges and all the things that go on. And some of us that are older, you know, we're amazed. Our children have grown up before our eyes and pretty soon they're having children. And we're moving into a whole generation. We're saying, where did the time go? My, I just remember back, you know, when Rachel was two years old, when she had her little cookie in her, in her overall pants, and our dog was following her around the house. I couldn't figure out why this dog was so attached to her. She had one of his snacks in her bib, you know, so the dog really liked her. <laughs> Smart kid, she was two. I can remember that. She's 19 now. Where did 17 years go by? Just like that, slipping right on by, isn't it? You know, we get caught up in all kinds of frenzied activities, and sometimes we miss truly enjoying the gift that God has given us. And what is that? To enjoy the time we have. Time is a gift, folks. God has graciously given this gift. Some people would love to buy back time. You know, you know, if you could, you know, if you could have, you know, if I had so much money and we could actually buy time back, I bet you people would be buying time like crazy, wouldn't they? Wouldn't that be the biggest commodity? Wouldn't we all be there standing in line? I want to buy more time. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. But most of us would say, I don't want to go back to where I was knowing what I did then. I don't want to have to go through all of those experiences to learn what I learned now. You know, I don't mind going back if I can take my mind with me, right, and have all those experiences so that I can make the kind of decisions based on my experience. One of the problems with our present worldly philosophy of life is that we can do whatever we want to do and there are no limits and that we forget that, our, that, that we are human and that we have limitations. Isn't, you know, the people I have the hardest time with are the motivational speakers. They're the guys that are always telling us what we can do even though we can't. And they're charging us money to tell us that. Isn't that the truth? You know, there's a denial of, you know, any sort of, you know, there are different people and different skill sets. How many know there are some people who are just never going to do some of the things? You know, you can't just say, I'm going to do this and then go do this. That's not the way life works. 
Everyone in this room, you have strengths and you have weaknesses. You have dispositions, you have temperament, you have abilities. And then there's other things you go, you know, teach me all you want to about painting, but I can't do anything but stick men and stick women. You know what I mean? I am just not an artist. I don't have that ability. You know, how many know what I'm talking about? Anybody else understand what I'm, where I'm coming from? And some people, this is no problem. They can say, I can make an artist out of everybody. I'm going, yeah, well, it'll, it, it will not, it'll look like I'm in grade two, you know? I'm just not going to get this, you know? It's going to be a difficult thing. Henry Thoreau once said, one is not born into the world to do everything, but to do something. That is so true. And so, you know, in our culture today, we're told we can do everything. And I'm telling you, we can't. And actually, that's one of the great misnomers of life. We're trying to do things that God's not asking us to do. We're trying to live life to its fullest. We're trying to suck everything we can out of life. You know, we want to travel the world, see everything, experience everything. And maybe God doesn't want you to have all those things and experience all those things. Maybe what we need to be doing is saying, Lord, teach me to number my days right. Grant me a heart of wisdom. Help me to understand what you're asking me to do. You know, and I think of Paul when he's talking about the church and he describes us as a human body. Isn't that kind of funny? He kind of describes the different body parts. And I, I kind of love these things, you know, because sometimes, you know, maybe some of us, you know, we're the eyeball and we have amazing vision. But you know what? We just have a real problem getting around because we're not feet, you know? And, you know, the feet are having a real problem with vision or with hearing or with, with smell or with taste because they're not that part of the body. You know, and if somebody keeps telling you, you can do this, you can do this, and you're going, listen, I've tried to do it, and I can't do it. You know, why don't we just finally say, I have certain limitations. I've come to accept that I am a human being. Because you see, in our culture today, we've exalted humanity such a high level, we just basically say humans can do everything. We've actually elevated humanity above God. And so we have this real high view of man, but now we have a very low view of God. And it's messing with our heads. It's messing us up as a culture. What we really need is a high view of God and a lower view of man to understand that we're all a bunch of dirt bags. You go, where in the world did you get that, Pastor? Well, let's take a look at the text here. Look at Psalm 90 and verse 1. We have this contrast between God and man. And notice what it says in verse 1. It says, uh, Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations. In other words, God doesn't have a problem with time. How many know you and I have a problem with time? You know, I love those texts when God says, wait patiently for me, for me. You know, wait patiently. And I'm saying, okay, God, I'm waiting. But I just want to point out one thing to you, God. You have all of eternity, and I'm stuck in time. So while you can spend a 1,000 years and it's nothing to you, every day counts for me. Just pointing that out to you, God. I don't want to seem impatient, but, you know, I've been waiting a long time for this. You know? Anybody relate to that? It says here, before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, your God. You turn men back to dust. See, that's where I say that we're, you know, dirt bags. You know, we're made of dirt, you know, and it's put in a little bag, right? You, know, you go, Pastor, you're not very flattering tonight. I'm just giving you a real biblical assessment of humanity. We're just a bunch of dirt, you know, and sometimes we need that little check in our soul. You know, we're not really that all, that, all that we think we are. Isn't that true? Oh, we like to think of ourselves as being wonderful and great. And, you know, there is an element of humanity that we're made in the image of God and we, we have a mind that God gave us and we have creative abilities. I could talk about all of that and say how great we are. 
But tonight I want to focus on this side of it because sometimes we forget this side, you know? We're, we're frail, we're dust, you know, we easily fall apart, parts don't work, we go to the doctor, and he says, I'm sorry, that's not going to work anymore. You know, how many know what I'm talking about? It's a little frustrating, you know? And eventually we're going to go back into the ground. Don't tell us that, Pastor, we don't want to think about dying. But I'm pointing out, from dust you came and dust you shall return. It says, for a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it's dry and withered. Do you want to know? You're living in this arid country called Israel, and grass does not thrive there. I've been there. It's the most barren country until you get to Galilee. It's pretty green. But I usually go in the wintertime when it is green. Everyone else says it's brown. It is not a flourishing, you know, we, we always look at places like, you know, get a lot of rain, it's green, it's beautiful, it's awesome, you know, we get a lot of precipitation here in Red Deer. It's pretty green around here. It's very nice. But I'll tell you one thing about grass, you know, you get about 10 days of straight sun and watch what happens to your lawns. If you don't water them, they turn brown. They're withering and dying. And he says, that's what life is like. You know, we spring up all this promise and vitality, and before you know it, a few years go by, and all of a sudden we start withering. And I hate to tell us all of this. It doesn't matter how much exercise you do. It doesn't matter how good you eat. Your body is going to start breaking down. You're going to get a little bit withered. Sorry to give you that news. But we want to live in denial. I don't want to think about that, Pastor. I want to stay young forever. It doesn't work, you know. Our culture is enmeshed with this idea of youth and beauty. Isn't it true? Sure. sure we are. We're totally enmeshed into that. But here we're reminded how quickly life passes. The second thing we need to consider regarding life, not only is it brief, but that apart from God, it's barren. It's empty. Do you know what it says in the book of Ephesians? That he's talking about non-Christians. He's talking about people who don't know Christ. He's talking about people who don't really know God. He says they're without hope and without God in this world. And I just put them together. No God, no hope. You have God, you have hope. You know what I say to people that are Christians when they come to me and they're in a hopelessly despairing situation? I say, listen, do you have God? They say, yeah. I said, you got hope. Now, if you didn't have God, I'd say you need God to get hope. But if you've got God, you've got hope. As long as there's God, there's hope. How do you know? Because God can do what humanity cannot do. And we need to grasp a hold of that and say, Lord, you can do the impossible. Why is there so much troubled, distressed, and sometimes even depressed people? I'm not saying all depression is created by this, but I'm going to say this. There's a lot of internal dissatisfaction. I've already said, suggested there's, a, there's an ache and a longing, but let me give you the other side of the ache and longing. We can't seem to put our finger on the trouble. A life lived out of harmony with the Creator and Savior means a deep emptiness of the soul. You cannot experience fullness apart from God. You know, I'm currently reading a book by Augustine, fourth century theologian, pastor. I'm reading his confessions, his autobiography. It's a beautiful book. It's a prayer. I love it. And in it, he says something very profound. He said, you know, when people sin, what they're, what's actually happening to your soul is it's becoming disintegrated. It's disintegrating. It's falling apart. 
You see, when you and I get our lives right with God and sin is addressed in our lives, God can begin to reintegrate our lives. There can become a wholeness there. What a beautiful thing that is. You know, I think there's a lot of people, you know what's going on? They're living in sin. Consciously, they've rationalized it all away. They say they're okay, but inwardly, they're disintegrating. And subconsciously, there's this absolute conflict going on on the inside of them. There's misery. Have you ever ever seen some people? It says, you know, there is no peace to the wicked. You cannot have peace in your soul if you're in rebellion against Almighty God. You just can't have peace. It doesn't happen. You know, much of our anxiety and fear comes from the subconscious realization that we're in rebellion toward God and there's a sense of accountability to Him. Look at verse 7. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. Now, I'm going to say some things that I know that are going to go right against being politically correct even in the church. Are we ready for this, guys? We're living in a culture that we don't want to hear that God's going to judge anybody. You know that's true, right? Oh, a whole bunch of Christians, now, hell, what's that, you know? We, we don't want to talk about these things, but listen to what the Scripture says. And I'm going to take what God's Word says over what humanity says every single day of the week. And think about who's writing this. It's Moses. And Moses was a man who had to deal with a bunch of people. And he had a bunch of them. I mean, he had probably two million people. And they were God's people who had delivered out of slavery. But where did God lead them? Into the desert. Into the wilderness. And why did God do that? Teach them, okay. But I'm going to give you a little idea. Deuteronomy chapter 8. In verse 3 and 4, you know what it says there? He says, I took you there to test you. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, when Jesus was starting out his ministry, where did the Spirit of God lead Jesus? Into the desert, into the wilderness. Why? To be tested. I'm going to argue tonight that one of the things God does in this life is to take you and I into the wilderness to test us. You see, we're trying to help everybody avoid the wilderness, We don't want to be tested. We don't want to be in the wilderness. But I'm going to argue with you, you have to go into the wilderness. You have to be tested. Because that's how we discover what's really on the inside. Because we're so good at faking ourselves out. We we, we have to do that because we've got to live with ourselves. And so we paint a picture of who we really are. But it's never a correct one. So let's take a look at what happened in the wilderness. The first place that we're going to look at is a place called Taborah. And in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. Let me stop and ask the question. Were there hardships in the wilderness? Absolutely. There were hardships. Testings are not easy. How many know that's true? A test is never easy. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a test. I just took one. Three hours. You know, I spent three months, Mark's reading books. Mark knows this. I spent, you know, three or four weeks writing 30 pages of notes, and then I had to go in with no notes, and I had to spend three hours answering the questions that I had spent three months preparing for. It was a test. Was that fun? No. Was it worthwhile? Yes, because now I'll find out how much I really learned. You can't find out how much. You know, people say, I read this book. I go, yeah, but what did you learn? When you're going to be tested on it, you're going to learn a little differently than if you're not going to be tested on it. I can tell you that right now. You're going to learn a lot more by being tested. 
It says here, the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, what happened? What happened? God got ticked off. That's my paraphrase. It says that anger was aroused. Oh, my goodness, Pastor. Don't tell us God gets upset. I'm telling you, we almost have a vision of God that God never gets upset. He never gets angry. He's just totally, totally patient with all of our sinful behavior. No, he gets upset about it. God gets upset about sin. We're the ones that are easy on sin. God's never been easy on sin. You know why? Because it cost him his son. God's not light on sin. We are, but he's not. You better think about that. I think we're making nothing out of sin. Well, God gets upset. It says, then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. And when the people cried out, by the way, people are not gonna cry out until there's consequences. And when consequences come to sin, that's when we start crying. And you know, if you don't have any consequences to sin, there's no tears. We just keep sinning. Come on. Is that the truth? Oh, yes, we'll just keep doing it. But the day the consequences, when the foot comes down, woo, we're crying the blues, you know. Then the people cried out, it says, to Moses, and he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. God got their attention. So that place was called Tabra because the fire from the Lord had burnt among them. What had they done? They had complained. Quick question. How many here this week you complained about something? Oh my goodness, you're in trouble. You are in trouble. You see, I just pointed out at the beginning of the message how good we have it here, and what do we do? We complain. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. God doesn't expect us to complain. I want you to think about what he says in his word. As a matter of fact, in the book of Philippians, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Always. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say it in the Old Testament. So if you think it's just in the New, he goes, well, I'll give you another New Testament text. It says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything. He didn't say for everything, but in everything we should be thankful. Even the tests, even the difficulties, even the bad things. Lord, I still thank you. You're still a good God. Nothing has changed. I'm still praising you. As a matter of fact, David says it this way in the Psalms. He says, I will bless the Lord when things are going good. That's not my translation. Might be in some people's translation, but I read, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my lips. Can I ask you a question this week? Were you praising God all the day long? There's a great hymn of the church, praising Jesus all the day long. Or were we muttering and complaining and stewing and fretting and ticked off and, you know, upset? I'm just asking the question. See, you know, we can look at the psalm and say, boy, are those guys bad in the desert, you know, whining and complaining. Take a look at ourselves. Do we whine and complain? Look at the second example. It's found in Numbers chapter 21 and verse 4 through 9. It says, They traveled from Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. How many people here say, I get a little impatient once in a while. Let me tell you something. Impatience always leads to sin. It's always going to get you into trouble. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? They made an accusation. What did God promise them? The promised land. So were they going to die in the desert? 
No, but because they rebelled against God, the very thing that they were afraid of happened to them. They died in the desert. Why? Because they rebelled. Look what it says here. And the Lord said, you know, well, they complained and they said, there's no bread, you know, there's, uh, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. We hate this manna. What is it anyway? That's what manna means. What is this stuff? I hate it. You know, they were whining about what they had. They didn't like what they had. Lord, forgive me when I complain about the good things you've given me and I don't see them as a gift of grace from your hand. Look what it goes on to say. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people. Many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we've sinned when we spoke against the Lord. They figured it out. We were, and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it on a pole, and anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, and then when anyone was bitten by a snake, they looked at, at the bronze snake, and he lived. That was, it was an act of faith. They, they, they basically, you know, he said, look, we're going to take the very thing that's killing you, we're going to put it on a pole. And what happened when Jesus Christ died? He became sin for us who knew no sin. And Jesus said, if you'll look up to me, if you'll look up to the one on the pole, in faith, you will be healed and you will live. Isn't that beautiful? That's what he told Nicodemus in John chapter three. Yeah, but pastor, this is the Old Testament. Come on now. Do you know what's interesting? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul's writing. He said, listen, now these things, what things? Stories I just read to you. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our heart on evil things as they did. What, what evil things were they setting their hearts on? Well, we want a different food. We want this. We want that. Can I just tell you something? What is idolatry? Idolatry is when I'm putting my hope and trust in something other than God. It's when I'm looking for something other than God to meet my need. I'm looking to a person to meet that need. I'm going to tell you something. As beautiful as people are, no person is going to meet all your needs. See, that's why marriages are having problems. People are looking for another person to meet their needs. That's not going to happen. Only God can meet your needs. You see? It says, do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angels. Angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the age has come. What were they grumbling about? Food, lack of water, direction, leadership, hardship. You know what God said? I'm taking all this personally. Why? I want you to think about it this way. You were born in the right century. You were born in the right place. You were put in the right family. Really? Yes. And I'm going to say something else to you. That everything that you've experienced in life and God has moved you through is for a reason. And if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you and I should just rejoice and thank God for the greatest gift that possibly could be given to any person. That you and I are putting our faith in Christ. That is the greatest gift. You know why? Because we now have eternal life. We have a life that transcends this world. We have a hope that transcends this world. 
As a matter of fact, we can live in spite of our negative and difficult and challenging circumstances, we can live not having these circumstances define who we are as a human being. Do you know what I notice? People are generally defined by their circumstances. And we always celebrate the stories of people who transcend their circumstances and rise above them. And we just start crying when we read those stories or we see those stories or we hear those stories. And we start crying, we just go, oh, that's so great, they rose above all this stuff. You know, isn't that true? But you know, there's something inside of us that says we should be doing that, right? We should be rising above these things. God is actually using those things as a tool to bring you up. But what do we do? I don't want to take the test. I don't want to go to class. I don't want to go to school. God says, I'm putting you in school. you got to go to class. You've got to take that test to grow up. How many think it's important that we grow up? How many here are thankful? You know, you have children. Aren't you thankful they grew up? How many, are, how many remember the day when your child was first potty trained? Wasn't that a great day? We all celebrate it. Come on now. How many people could actually go, thank you, Lord, they're potty trained? Right? Isn't that true? Could you imagine having a 15-year-old that wasn't potty trained? <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> you go, oh my goodness, Pastor, please don't go there. But think about it. Yeah, that's right. Some people have children, they're, they're incontinent, and they have all kinds of disabilities. And at 15, they're still cleaning up after them. That's true. But we go, that's not normal. That's not the goal, right? The goal is for them to develop physically, emotionally, mentally, and God says even spiritually. God is interested in our growth. You know, he's not going to keep babying us. He's going to have us grow up. In other words, God led them, as I've said, in the wilderness to test them to see if they'd be faithful, to see if they would trust him. You know, God has not changed. He's still the same. Just like, like the Holy Spirit led the Israelites into the wilderness to worship, so he led Jesus in the wilderness to be tested. The Holy Spirit is going to lead us into our wilderness so that we're tested. And how will we respond? Will we trust God's promises? Or will we chafe and complain under the challenges that God has placed in our life? We have to decide. How are we going to handle it? And what we need to say is, God... This is the right test for me. It's not the right test for someone else. This is the test I need. This is the test to make me more like you. You've designed all of these things for me. You're an amazing God. You know exactly what I need. You know, sin causes us to live in shame and in concealment. You know, we spend an incredible amount of energy trying to hide our inadequacies and sinful tendencies from each other. As a matter of fact, Samuel Johnson once wrote, almost every man wastes part of his life in attempts to display qualities in which he does not possess. In other words, he's trying to pretend he's better than what he really is. And don't we try to do that? We're all trying to be better than what we really are. It's not wrong to try to be better, but to somehow convey to people that we're better than we really are, that's a major problem. That's, that's called you know, image management. John Trent uses that phrase, image management. We're trying to present a certain image. And you know, as I was listening to this, you know, I'm not only reading the book on confessions, I'm listening to some lectures by uh, two scholars, one a history scholar and one a literature scholar on this book. So I'm reading the book and I'm listening to the lectures. It's very fascinating. And they said, you know what was really neat about the confessions? Here's a man 
who is now 41 years old. He's written a book at this stage in his life. He's a bishop, he's a godly person, but he's writing about his failures. He talked about his conversion, some of the stuff he was in bondage to. We, don't have, we have a hard time with that. He said, for example, you know, one of the professors was saying, we had an election recently and they, the reporters came to all of the candidates and says, tell us one mistake you made in your life and what did you learn from it? And he thought, well, this is gonna be really interesting. And you know, it was amazing some of the stuff they said. You know, I got a speeding ticket. I was doing 33 and a 30. You know, in other words, you know, come on now. Is that all you learned? But you know, people are so afraid to let people know that there's still a problem in their life. And as a matter of fact, in this book, Augustine is sharing, he's saying, you know, even as a bishop, not that I'm doing these things, but I'm still struggling with these things. And I'm gonna say a thought to you. Don't let anybody fool you. We're all being tempted. And the person that tells you I don't have temptation is a person who's lying to you or lying to themselves. We are all being challenged. You will be challenged till the day you die. You will be tempted to be a whiner and a complainer. You will be tempted to do all kinds of things you shouldn't do. You know what the reality is? We still have a choice to make. And now by the empowering presence of God, and when we know what God wants us to do, we say yes to God and no to sin. Isn't that right? But God sees us as we really are. In verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Boy, I tell you, God's evaluation of us sometimes is not too pretty. We're not all that hot. He goes, the length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength, and yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Marvin Tate, the Old Testament scholar, says both the power of God's wrath and the quality of reverence due him elude the knowing of human beings. If we really understood how angry God is towards sin, it would shake us right to the core of our being. We don't even understand it. We have minimized it, believe me. That's what he's saying. And the reverence that is due him, we do not pay God a high enough due. We do not exalt him to the degree that we really ought to. You know, the angels marvel at our busyness down here and how we're you know, distracted, and they're in the presence of the most wonderful person, and they're in glory worshiping him. And they watch us down here as, you know what, we spend very little time acknowledging God. What a tragedy, isn't it? Let me move on real quickly to the third thing we need to consider. The first is the brevity of life. The second is the barrenness of life apart from God. And finally, this is the positive one, life can be filled with blessing. You know, life can be beautiful. Life is beautiful. It's a gift from God. But it depends on our desires and our attitudes. Biblical wisdom challenges us to have a correct attitude towards our Creator, our God. We must learn to look at God in order to number our days correctly. We must cry out to Him for help to return to Him and have Him turn with favor towards us. I love 12. You know, it says, Teach us, O Lord, to number our days and to gain a heart of wisdom. Notice that prayer of repentance in verse 13. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. Isn't that great to wake up in the morning and say, Lord, good morning. What a great day this is. We're gonna share it together. What do you have in store for us? 
Where are we going today? Who are we going to talk to? What are the things we're going to do? And we can sing for joy and be glad all our days. Isn't it great to live a life of joy and gladness? You know, how many people, you're a happy person. Joy and gladness flood your life. In the presence of the Lord, there's what? Fullness of joy. We should be the happiest people. Not happy in the sense, giddy happy. I'm talking about people who are full of thanksgiving and rejoicing and joy in our lives because we know that we're walking with God and he's with us on this journey. And he's never gonna leave me nor forsake me. Satisfy in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants and your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. I pray for that. I say, Lord, I, I pray for your favor. I pray it for my children. I pray it for the church family here. I pray it for our fellowship of churches. I pray for your divine favor. And when I hear of God's people who are being blessed by God, I rejoice because I'm delighted that God is showing favor to us. Isn't that awesome? I don't think we deserve it. It's God's favor that comes our way. Thank you, Lord. Well, let me close with this. I've talked a little bit about Augustine. My mind's kind of focused a little bit on thinking about some of his life. He once preached a sermon where he proposed a kind of self-test to see if we truly love God. How many, we're going to take the test. It's a one-minute test. Here it goes. Suppose God proposed to you a deal and he said, I will give you anything you want. You can possess the whole world. Nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be a sin. Nothing will be forbidden. You will never die, never have pain, never have anything you don't want, and always have everything you do want, except for just one thing. You will never see my face. What an interesting thought. And then he said this. Did a chill rise in your heart? When you heard the words, you will never see my face. That chill is the most precious thing in you. That is the pure love of God. In other words, you want to know when you really love God is when you get to that place and you say, God, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. I'd rather have Jesus than all of what the world offers because I have discovered your love and I can't live without you. I'd rather have you than anything else. See, this is where we need to come. This is the place God's calling us to. And I'm going to tell you something. It is a desirable place. It is an enjoyable place. It is a delightful place. And you know what I like about this place? It doesn't matter what happens to you anymore because you're satisfied. There's still an ache because you want to see him face to face. There's still an ache because there's still struggles in their soul. There's still an ache because you hear of sin and failure around you. There's still an ache because sometimes you fail. But deep down in your soul, you say, God, I want you above everything else. Isn't that beautiful? I love it. What an amazing test, huh? Let's stand tonight as we close. Don't you love this prayer for wisdom? Teach me, O Lord, to number my days rightly, aright. And grant to me a heart of wisdom. Help me to be able to look full face 
in that messenger of death and say, you know, yeah, you're coming, you're a haunting voice, but I know you're a shadow because I'm trusting Jesus. And you're actually just a door, and when I pass through you, I will behold my Savior face to face. How many here say, Pastor, I want to pray for this kind of wisdom. I want to teach, I want God to teach me to number my days rightly. I want God to grant to me a heart of wisdom. Isn't that beautiful? Biblical wisdom. It's a great thing. Lord, you hear our, you hear the cry of our soul. We long for you. You're absolutely beautiful. And Lord, we ask you tonight to forgive us where we have complained, got frustrated, and been impatient. Lord, we've asked you tonight to forgive us where we've not valued and appreciated the challenges and the tests that you've run us through. The wilderness that you've brought us into, Lord, you've designed that test to make us the person that will become more and more like you. And so I pray today, Father, that when the tests come our way, that your grace will fill our hearts. Rather than frustration and angst and anxiety, and hurt and heartache, Lord, you will give us wings that will lift us above our circumstances. And joy will sustain us. And we'll be able to love you, even though there may be tears, and loss, and pain, Father, but we'll still have a joy. We'll still have a peace. That hope will burn bright within our souls, O Lord. Father, that we have learned the great lesson of life to praise you, to love you, to trust you, to have our eyes on you, to hope in you, Lord, because you're going to lift us, and you're making us more like you, and that's, that's a beautiful thing, Lord. You've taken us a long ways from where we've been. We're on this journey with you right now, Father, and we're headed to our destiny in you. Lord, help us turn neither to the right nor to the left, but may our eyes be fixed on you tonight. We just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.